recording fucking sucks. But what I do like, <laughs> I do like uh, getting to do shows where you have a script in hand. Oh yeah, those are fun. They're really fun. Yeah, like, they're a blast. They take away all of the all of the pressure and anxiety of not knowing your stuff, and you can you can goof around with it. I just love it. Definitely. Do you? So you've had experience with obviously you've acted some stuff. Yeah. In the in the past. Yeah. Um, I think that there's something really the same way that there's something fun about doing an improv scene versus doing a scripted scene. I think there's something fun in, fun about having the script in your hand and the the leeway that everyone in the audience gives you to play around with that. But also there's a a mastery that you have the material when you memorize it. Mm-hmm. That's like you know, its own kind of fun. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think I do know what you mean when, when you have it, um, memorized. So, so for me, the pros and cons of memorizing something, uh, when it's memorized, the pro of it is that you really do start to pick up your cues from the people around you. Mm-hmm. I think your acting becomes a lot better. You, you start to say your lines to people for a reason and your comedian brain kicks in and you, you attach to the reason why you're saying what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And I think your acting improves. Yes. Um, and I think that it takes you away to fuck around with the timing of a scene. Once mm-hmm. you know it really well, you can mess with the timing and stuff. Yeah. I think the con side to memorizing it is if you don't get enough rehearsal time, like I have this thing whenever I have to memorize a script where I'll memorize it in a whisper and if I whisper it to myself privately, I, I'll know the whole script. And then the second I look someone in the face and have to speak, I can't remember anything. It's like it's right. stored in short-term memory, but isn't in like the long enough thing. And you need like a good chunk of time to rehearse with other people in order to get that get that transference to happen. Yes. And a lot of the projects I've done, uh, you just don't have that time to rehearse. You have to like memorize it tonight. We're filming this tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. And then it doesn't feel... It just doesn't feel good to, to sort of like you're 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 worried about seeming genuine at the same time that you're worried about the if the words that you're saying out of your mouth are correct. Yeah, it's just like too many balls to juggle. Yeah, you know. And I mean, there's uh, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to just be wishy washy. Everything can work, guy. But I mean, there's something there, there can be that frenetic energy to, you know, when you kind of know something and you're like. It's, it's exciting. And sometimes that can invigorate a performance, you know? That's fun if you're doing a sketch, which is always, not that I have a lot of experience doing sketches, but it's always rushed. It feels like it is never enough time to pull it together. It's yeah. always like by the seat of your pants a little bit. And there is something really fun about like having to wing it in a sketch. That's why I like, I have a, 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 a little bit of like a romantic um, attachment to like, that old school performer, like the Jackie Gleason era performer where you're always hearing these stories about how like the whole cast would never get to rehearse with each other or like the set would fall apart and like on live TV, they'd have to like make it up and and kind of fix it. I like that element in sketch comedy where you got to be on your toes a little bit and, and you really just have to dig your heels into what's funny about a scene and push it for, for all you got. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. (gasps) Yeah. Well, this is the Magnet Theater Podcast. <laughs> oh, we started? Yeah, we, we did. Uh, uh, but there's always a little fun preamble. Don't you like that? It's like the pre-Game of Thrones things on... on oh, uh, last time on Game of last Thrones? Last time on Game of Thrones. Yeah. Uh, That's cool. Yeah. Yeah.
listening to The Magnet Podcast. This is The Magnet Theater Podcast. I'm your host, Louis Kornfeld. My guest today is uh, uh, the great Jarrett Berenstein. Blushing. Thank you. Over here. Thank you for being here. No, thank you for having me. It's a, it's a, a pleasure. Likewise. I'm excited about it. You have a book coming out. Yes, I do. I This is the first I've heard about it. Oh, well, then I have not been doing my job uh, promoting it then. No, I just don't like pay attention on, <laughs> on social media. You got my stuff blocked on Facebook and everything? <laughs> yeah. Well, you were sending me like way too many private notifications. Yeah. Well, you know, I just really wanted you to click uh, mate that you were interested in my events. <laughs> that is my favorite new thing. I'm, I'm interested. I'm interested. You know, <laughs> I'm not even going to go so far as to say I'm a maybe on this. I'm just yeah. like, well, I'll keep my eye on it. Yeah. yeah. That's fun. Saying you're interested is akin to saying nothing at all. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. That's not committing yourself one way or the other to anything. Yeah, I'm just interested. I'm aware. You mm. might as well just say I'm aware. Yeah, yeah, I saw. Yeah. That's a fun thing. Well, yeah, no, um, I got uh, I got hired by this uh, publishing company to write a book making fun of uh, Trump surrogate Kellyanne Conway. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this was about, I think, back in April of 2017. And thankfully, I knew somebody at the publishing company who recommended me and was like, I know this guy, he's, he's really funny. He follows politics. He, um, probably has enough time on his hands to do this sort of thing. Cause, uh, I don't have a day job. And so, you know, I got the phone call and they were like, yeah, you know, this is, they were trying to capitalize on, um, you know, some of the insane political fervor that is happening right now, mm-hmm. uh, for obvious reasons. And so they wanted somebody who could bang out the book really fast and still have it be funny. And so, you know, because I didn't have a job, I was like, yeah, sure. I'll chain myself to my desk for, you know, six weeks and, uh, and work on this. And it was a mixed bag because it was really fun to like write things and to have the license to be funny with this sort of stuff. But it was also terrible because it meant that I had to watch a lot of Kellyanne Conway clips and it is just infuriating, you know, I don't know how you guys, lean politically, but it is just lie after lie and just like bullshit on top of bullshit. And especially if you've watched a bunch, you can see all the different ways that she's trying to like bend the truth and distract her interviewers. And it's infuriating, particularly to look at it now, knowing that it worked, Mm -hmm. knowing that they won. And so it's like, you know, that was the difficult part of it. But the fun part was, you know, you finish a book, and it was sort of, I'd never written anything that long before, you know, especially in that short period of time. And the publishing company got it. They sat on it for a long time. So I was like, oh, maybe they're just going to throw in the garbage or whatever. And then I think about a month or two later, they finally got around to reading it. And then word apparently started spreading through the office that it was really funny and that they were going to put a little bit more heat behind it. And so now we are in the process of working on promotions and making sure that the copies are all out to the various Barnes and Nobles and, you know, opinion makers and stuff like that. How do you uh, find a perspective on someone like Kellyanne Conway where she's being picked apart constantly? Yes. But like, wh- how do you keep it fresh for yourself? Well, what I did, well, I did a lot of research into not only the things that she was saying, but also... Uh, the things that other people had been saying about her. And I saw a lot of really cool articles, and I think Vox has a really cool little five-minute video about it. But 
the thing is, it really is just scratching the surface. Like I didn't, I wouldn't have been able to tell you this before I started working on the book, but there is 150 pages worth of nonsense into what she does. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the way that I tried to be fresh about it was it wasn't just a book about making fun of Kelly and Conway. It was, I'm going to unabashedly be myself in this book. I'm going to be really silly. I'm going to make a lot of goofy analogies. Um, at one point, I reference Goro from Mortal Kombat. I don't know if you guys are familiar. Can you describe Goro? Goro me? is a very big man. I th- oh god, this is. Does he have multiple arms? He does have multiple arms. Goro, yeah. sure. <laughs> <laughs> you just lead off with multiple arms. Yeah, yeah. But I, I was getting stuck because I couldn't remember if it was uh, four arms or six arms. I think okay. it's four arms. Um, thank you. All right, we go. Our, our, Joe, <laughs> yeah. our engineer, is saying four. It's four arms. Four arms. But yeah, so like that's where I was. That's where I was gonna be. That's how I was gonna distinguish myself in this book. I was like, it's a book about Kellyanne Conway, but I'm gonna make it funny in the way that I want a book about Kellyanne Conway to be funny, you know. And I didn't bother with trying to be an objective reporter. I was like, I am a a, a person who is offended by the things that she is saying. And uh, I hope that that vitriol just bleeds from the page. And uh, the entire the entire book is written from the perspective of somebody who really admires her. Mm-hmm. But it is a very thin veil mm-hmm. in this book. And so that's you know that was my angle on making it a unique interpretation. What's the format of the book? It's basically like um, you. We start off with you know me talking about why spin is important and the kind of people that need spin and why it's great, and then how amazing Kellyanne Conway is. And then I do a couple of, um, you remember those Chuck Norris lists that were popular for a while? Like sure. Chuck Norris has three fists, one's behind his beard, that sort of thing. Yeah. I go on a little tangent in the introduction about how incredible Kellyanne Conway is at spin, you know, similarly insane things that she's accomplished. And then basically say to the reader that we're going to outline in this book her basic uh, methodology of spinning things and in you know basically all the different tactics divided up in a way that you can then use them in your everyday life. So the same way that she is going to make it seem like colluding with Russia is not a big deal, you can tell your boss why it's not a big deal that you're late to work, mm-hmm. or you can explain to your girlfriend why there is a college girl naked in the closet. That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. What do you did you watch her uh, stand up? Kellyanne Conway stand-up? Yeah. No. Oh, my God. That was like, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the right analogy, like just a giant black void like the nothing yeah. in the never-ending story. I was just like, I, I just, I, I can't. It would make me so, it, it would make me angry on like 10 different levels. Like, I don't like this person. I hate the things that she says. And also she's doing poor, a poor version of of something that I love, stand-up comedy, something yeah. that I that I do. You know, it's something that I find fun. I was like, I, I had to shut that part of her out of my brain. What's your take on, like Alex Jones had that thing of claiming that he's a performance artist. So anything that he says under the guise of Alex Jones is is a, a kind of... Uh, a kind of performer. He's, uh, he's, he's, he's a comedian. A, he's a comedian. Well, what's his name? Uh, Glenn Beck also had that excuse yeah. for a little while. But um, your show is called Infowars. Mm. You know, uh, that is a name that suggests that you are some sort of a underground news organization. You, if you're not tipping your hat at all. 
if that's actually what you're doing. There are people out there who believe the things that you say. And I mean, it's one thing if it's like somebody like Alex Jones who just has a show where he's talking on the internet. It's another thing if you are actively working to get somebody elected to be the president of the United States. Like Mm -hmm. there are real world consequences to that sort of thing. And so I have zero forgiveness for that. Don't you find it interesting that there seems to be this... um this kind of like weird era right now of not funny people kind of fighting back against funny people in a way. Yeah. Like, you mean like Mike Huckabee is doing Mike Huckabee, uh, uh, Kellyanne Conway with her like stand up thing. Like there, there mm-hmm. seems to be this kind of like resentment at, uh, 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 what's the like right way to phrase this? Uh, people without a sense of humor are fighting back against people with a sense of humor. And because kind of, actually, because people who are really funny tend to be liberal people. And so they make all this great yeah. art and comedy about how bad conservatives are. And so that's the thing that's happening now. I, I hadn't noticed until you said it, it's really astute observation. It's but. not my observation. <laughs> I came across it somewhere. Somebody okay. somebody posted something about uh, uh, like revenge against comedians. Yeah, I mean, it makes it, it completely makes sense, but it's yeah, it's it's infuriating on the same way that that Kellyanne Conway stand up was too infuriating for me to even look at. Mm-hmm. It's infuriating because you know that it's not funny, you know that it's wrong, also, and you know that it's affecting people. You know that there are people out there who are looking at that and being like. Yes, yes, I like it not because it's funny, but because I agree with it or it's convincing me that that's the right way to go. Yeah, I just find it uh, infuriating on 10 different levels. And as a as a political person, as somebody who has a lot of hardcore political beliefs, uh, I fight against that rage all the time because I don't know how productive it is to be that angry about that sort of thing. Well, you yeah. seem pretty well balanced in terms of your rage uh, keeps you, uh, uh, at the grindstone. It keeps you busy and working, but it doesn't seem to consume you in a way where like you don't, you don't communicate a sense of bitterness or a sense of, you, you seem cynical, (laughs) you seem cynical, but you don't, you don't have that, like that bitter dark storm quality that sometimes I think can get inside people when they spend too much time too exposed to the things that are making them so angry that, it kind of eats away at them. Yeah. Well, I was, I was laughing because I was like, well, then you weren't on Reddit in November. Like, I, I guess <laughs> full confession. Yeah. I, I haven't, I was not on Reddit in November. No, Why, I what, was, ha- what happened? I just, that, that was the peak of me uh, getting into fights with strangers oh, online. Yeah. And, uh, and when I say strangers, I mean like probably 90% uh, Russian hackers, yeah. Russian people who were paid to pretend like they were Americans yeah. and that they love Donald Trump. Um, yeah, no, I, uh, I, I would let my vitriol out. And it was especially bad during that time because I was, uh, I had to leave my apartment for five months because there was construction going on there. So I was bouncing around from place to place. And so I was feeling the anxiety of not having a home, of, of like constantly having to run around. You you were physically feeling the exact feelings that everybody else was spiritually <laughs> feeling. We have no place to live anymore. What do we yeah, do? hundred percent. And then the election happens and all these people that you, that I have been yelling at and arguing with online, the one thing we're just like waiting for their comeuppance to happen. We're waiting for 
you know, listen, um, you know, I, I was a big Reddit user, not because of the politics, just, you know, it's a fun place to go to look at uh, cute cat and dog videos and things like that, you know? And then all of a sudden, all of these, uh, then this, this subreddit uh, uh, popped up and it was, you know, it eventually uh, became revealed that it was all, you know, Russians that were being paid to pretend to be Americans that love Donald Trump. And it was infuriating and it was all over the place. And you, I would get into these political arguments with people all the time and it would, it would, it would enrage me, but my blood would boil to the point where I would realize like, it's okay. It's going to be over in November. Mm-hmm. It's going to be done. And then it wasn't. And then just felt so much worse. Mm-hmm. And then I started doing, and then I started, I had to then put like blocks on the amount of time that I would spend arguing with somebody. Cause mm-hmm. I was like, this is not productive. I just spent all day arguing with this quote unquote person uh, about, you know, X and Y belief or something like that. And then we're calling each other Ill- idiot and we're putting LOLs in our answers so that we can see cooler than the other person, you know, and I'm linking to articles, you know, that I'm finding on Washington Post and everything. And it's just, and you know, uh, it, it was so, it was such a giant waste of time and waste of energy. And also like, um, I find that rage to be so consuming in a way where it's, you, you think like, it's just not fair. Like I want this person to change their mind because it's not fair what's happening, but that rage is not going to help change anybody's mind. Right. And so I was fighting against that also. And so I had to like severely change the way that I thought about my own personal rage towards what's going on in the world politically. And then, you know, uh, yeah, I guess that maybe helped me to not be the bitter husk of a man that you were describing. Oh, I, I struggle with, um, exactly that, that sometimes, sometimes it's important to dig in and fight just to kind of take your stand and, and Mm -hmm. that's the right, you know, appropriate thing to do. But, but I have the thing of, um, I, I so badly want to convince the other side to see things clearly and rationally. I yeah. want to convert. And, and you know that, like, I'm not converting anybody to, you know, to, to see things in a way that I think is level-headed and, and clear-minded. And so it becomes a little bit like screaming into the wind. Yeah. It, there's this thing of, what do I do with this anger when I know that my kind of go, I know that like the justice of getting someone to see the light of day, which is a super arrogant thing for me to say, as if I see the light of day, I, I don't mean to win someone over to my political side. Mm-hmm. All I mean is to, to try to persuade someone to entertain multiple points of view at the same time and not settle in on any one of them needing to be the dominant one. That, that actually, like, that's probably the best um, methodology that I've ever heard uh, as far as like how we can affect some political change in the culture, like just trying to convince somebody to be open to the idea. That's really smart. I hadn't even thought about that before. Well, I think where we are right now, like it, 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 as important as all these things are, as important as healthcare is, as important as climate change is, as important as Russian interference in the election is, and they're all like massively globally earth-shaking important things. Culturally, we're stuck in a really trivial state of mind. The more and more intensely angry everybody becomes, the more trivial it is, uh, 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 the more trivial the things are that we're getting angry about. Mm -hmm. Everybody is seeing everything in in these either-or terms. 
So it, it, people are getting really angry about these ideological things that are, are making our vision so, so microscopic. The way that the GOP is digging into this healthcare thing, to me, seems like such a microscopic thing to focus on when there are so many severe problems that are knocking at the door right now. And I think we're suffering from a lack of imagination. We're suffering from a lack of an ability to entertain multiple alternative ways to think about something and let them kind of coexist and let them kind of fester in the mind and, and, and instigate a more creative response to the problems of the world. I think that's a hundred percent fair. And I also think that, and I mean, I have to admit that I, I've just been exposed to so much, uh, obtuseness from this one political party. And I can see the influence that things like Fox news and Infowars has had on them. I feel like that's a, um, a symptom of them painting this as us versus them. Yeah. I'm not saying that the, the mainstream media is blameless in that, but I really feel like as, you know, when I was a kid uh, growing up in the 90s and people were just starting to talk about Fox News, they were just starting to talk about Bill O'Reilly. It was the very first time that we saw this this bullheadedness of of these are your enemies. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the, the Fox News are just shouting out to everybody out there. Liberals are your enemies. These crybabies are your enemies, you know. Um, and I, I want to reiterate that I really don't think the left is blameless. I don't think the mainstream media is blameless there, but I really do think that there is a strong amount of blame that we can put on Fox News and on the GOP. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's it's a false equivalency to take the sins of all of us and say that they are equal to that. To say that they are equal to the uh, God, the the truth genocide that has happened from that side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're talking about the arrogance of saying, like, I don't know the answer, I just want to open people up to, to uh, the fact that there might be other perspectives out there. I think that that's a very smart thing to say, but I really worry sometimes that as liberals were too open to the idea that we might be wrong when there really are things that the right is saying is correct that are ju- that's just false. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think that, that we on the left have suffered from an openness to people saying like, well, all the science isn't in on climate change yet. Like, I think... We should have been stamping our feet about that 20 years ago and saying, no, we know the answer to this. And we've gotten to a point, oh God, I'm getting so, I, I have a problem where whenever I start talking about politics, I start sounding like a conspiracy theorist, mm-hmm. um, where like just, just describing the way that the prison industrial complex has perverted our country, I sound like a tin hat person. And so I try to, I, I was doing, um, I, I, I was a big Bernie fan and then I was a big Hillary fan. I, you know, you can love them both. That's, that's, that's You can wonderful. entertain multiple points of yeah, view simultaneously. Exactly. Um, but I, I knocked on doors with a friend of mine uh, for Bernie Sanders when he was in the primary. And I was telling my friend, I was like, you have to do all the talking because I'm going to sound like a crazy person yeah. if, if they ask me why I like Bernie versus Hillary, you yeah. know, or why I think Bernie over any Republican, that sort of thing. So, yeah, I try to... Uh, and this is another thing, like, I, I have just started putting more politics into my standup. My standup is like 90%, you know, really silly jokes about dating or, you know, um, uh, God, I get a, a joke about um, uh, the fact that uh, in Israel, they have a martial art called uh, 
Um, do you know the Israeli martial arts called? I forget. Uh, uh, it's not Krav Maga. Krav Maga. Krav Maga. Yeah. yeah, it's called Krav Maga, and it should be named judo because it comes from Israel, and that's where all the Jews are, obviously. It's a good joke. Uh, thank you very much. I've just started trying to put politics into it because for the longest time, I would just get too worked up. Yeah. I would just get too angry. And I just, I don't want to make a joke about it. I just want to shout at everybody that, you know, climate change is real. Gay people are humans. You know, uh, every one of my bleeding heart snowflake uh, ideologies, I just want to shout them and then go back to, you know, so I'm single and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. So, so let's switch a, a little bit. Um, I want to talk about the differences between your stand-up comedy and your improv comedy because okay. it seems to me that there. And correct me about this. We've never talked about this. I have no idea. I'm speaking totally, totally out of my out of my range. Okay. But I would imagine that the voice that you have as a stand-up comedian, which is very much is going to come from your point of view, and and you can be very selective about how political you want to get, and very selective about what you want to be laughing at. I would imagine something else is exercised when you're improvising that is not your point of view it's something you're giving something to a group of people to to mess around with that is a hundred percent uh accurate and it's also well it's not as simple as saying that the stand-up is closer to me than the improv Mm -hmm. like obviously in improv you have so much leeway to be goofy and silly and different characters and you're french in one scene and you're a uh a pig in a talking pig in in the second scene excuse me but there is a journey um, for every stand-up comedian to find out what their voice is. Mm-hmm. And I started doing stand-up much more like a, you know, just me on stage in front of a microphone. And then for a while I was trying more of a slow Todd Berry kind of a delivery, you know, people kind of a sinister voice that I was using. Can you, can you make that voice now? Um, let's see here. I was doing like a... Uh, I'm trying to think of this is I'm going to do one of my one of my less popular jokes Great. from that era. So that was like, um, uh, I'm a waiter when uh, I'm not doing stand up. And the other day, one of my tables asked me, are you starring in Jersey Boys right now? And I said, yes, I am. I'm your waiter and I am starring on Broadway. But you know what's even more amazing than that? Tonight, we have a special on jalapeno poppers. See, it wasn't a great joke, but it's not a that, terrible that joke. Was the, it's an okay uh, joke. Yeah. But that, 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 that doesn't feel like you for sure. No, no. It was something that I was working on, and um, it definitely worked for a little while. Like, I got into uh, a couple of festivals based on that style of comedy that I was doing, and I got uh, into a couple of clubs based on that style of comedy that I was doing. But I did find it very limiting at one point. And then it sort of like started growing into, I don't know, like it's 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 a little bit more fun now, the persona that I have on stage. And, you know, I think any good stand-up will tell you that you have to be at least a little bit flexible to the energy that the audience is giving you because an audience of three people is going to be different than an audience of a thousand people. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I think that finally after, you know, doing standup for like a decade, I'm able to find a little bit of that fun flexibility that you get to have in improv while you're doing standup. Mm-hmm. And I've started doing bigger, sillier act outs than 
I you I was doing especially like during my Todd Berry sinister voice phase. Mm-hmm. You know, well, how would you describe your persona now? Um, yeah, just uh, uh, I want to say like playfully annoyed, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, like it's a uh, very, very straight face. I mean, you know, you've seen me do improv a thousand times. Like mm-hmm. it's, uh, uh, I, I have a really hard time not cracking a smile because I'm having a lot of fun when I'm doing improv. And it's the exact opposite when I'm doing stand up, where it's there's some of the energy that I try to get out of the audience comes from the fact that I just said a thing that is ridiculous or insane. And I am have a look in my face like I'm not crazy and everybody's laughing. Mm-hmm. And so like that kind of builds where I'm just like looking at them, like stop laughing. This is a real thought that I have. And, you know, and then uh, hopefully that builds like that. I hope it's not sounding pretentious to talk about my own stand up that way. But. Of course it is. <laughs> is this something that you like, are you one of the guys who will like study videos of yourself and listen to recordings of yourself and kind of craft the persona or is it more of like an intuitive feeling your way to your own sort of true north on stage? Uh, definitely not study, but I I record every set and there are times when I want to go back and see exactly like what the timing was or what the wording was mm-hmm. when I do something. But I would say I'm a little bit closer to being intuitive about it. I know that Patton Oswalt used to talk about like having a chart of his his shows and what jokes worked in what order and whatnot. And I recognized a long time ago when I started doing stand-up that there are just too many variables and mm-hmm. that, that it has to be something that you intuit when you're on stage. But there is a certain level of professional diligence that you have to has a, have as a comedian if you want to make progress, especially in stand-up. And something as small as, you know, changing one word to a synonym that has just a stronger K sound or just like, a, or, or changing the phrasing of something, you know, can have a, a giant effect on the way that a joke works. And so, you know, I would be remiss if I did not talk about that pr- part of the process where I have sat in my room at my computer and like worked on phrasing and, you know, delivered things to the mirror and tried to, you know, change words around and try to figure out where, what information is necessary for a joke to really work. Um, but no, but I, but I definitely do both. Like I definitely try to feel it out at the same time as I try to put in the legwork. I've heard people talk on Mark Maron's podcast a hundred different times about that, Mm. that kind of strange thing where the audience, if you're really good, the audience believes that you are almost making up these jokes as you go. You're talking directly to them and they don't see the fact that this is really well crafted. Mm. Um, and that's something that I think sometimes people will forget that you, you craft that performance and there is a certain, um, I guess obsessiveness is the word it's work, it's craft. It it requires, it requires lots of labor and toil into doing stuff like delivering to yourself in front of a mirror and working out the timing and working out what consonant is going to be the funniest consonant in this particular sentence and all that. Yeah. Um, do you feel confident at this stage of your career, 10 years into stand up? Do you feel professional in that sense of, um, you can get up there and do your job. You can make the audience follow along with you at this point. Yes. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, I think that when you are a stand up, you learn a certain level of humility, the longer that you do it. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think any stand-up is going to come up here and tell you that they're going to crush 100% of the time. Yeah. But 
we know what we're doing. And so even in front of an audience of two people, you know how to command their attention and deliver your material in a way that's going to connect with those two people. It might not always work. And I mean, one of the th- one of my favorite things about uh, comedy podcasts like um, uh, Mark Marin is that you hear so many great comedians talk about that struggle. And, you know, people who are, you know, uh, opening for Louis C.K. or, you know, have already done their Comedy Central half hours and hours they still they still talk about eating it, and mm-hmm. they still talk about doing those shows where you're just not getting anything from the audience. But you learn how to do the job regardless. Mm-hmm. And one of the other things that gives me pause is like I started out as a stand-up comedian with an exaggerated level of confidence. The first show that I ever did was a friend of mine's show, variety show. There was some stand-up, there was some improv, there were some characters. And I just had the friendliest audience of all time. And I was super nervous going into it. And I had a friend of mine taping it. And I just went up there. And I didn't even memorize my jokes. I had them on a little note, note card that I put on a music stand. And I was just going through my material. And I was crushing. And I was like, this is my first time. I'm clearly like, you know, the Mozart of stand-up comedy. Like, I'm great. And so I started thinking about myself as like, you know, I'm not going to waste my talent at an open mic. I'm mm-hmm. not going to waste my time doing a bringer show. I just got to keep on doing shows every now and again until I get discovered and I can and I can just catapult myself to stardom. Right. Purple onion, here I come. Oh, my God. Yeah, I was so... Uh, I, like, I remember doing an open mic with a friend of mine where, uh, you know, he's he was a big laugher also, so I took every one of his laughs as, uh, you know, in a as evidence that I should be headlining the Apollo and just walking away from this open mic and being like, we're better than this, man. We're better than this. Mm. And so I started doing these, um, uh, these bringer shows and it just is so embarrassing to admit that a bringer show is when you, you get stage time in exchange for bringing like a certain number of audience members and these poor fucking audience members, these, these friends of yours who have friends and family who have come there to support you end up paying like $50, $60 each. Mm-hmm. It is such a scam. It sucks. But I but I was like, this is the only way that I'm going to get exposure at a club. Yeah. So I did these bringer shows a bunch of times and I have them all on tape, thank God. And so I can go back to, I remember the first one I did, I, I walked away from there. I was like, I annihilated. They're going to have me working here tomorrow. And I'll be 100% honest, like the laughs were there. But I was bad. Mm. I was so bad. And I look at the video now, and as an experienced stand-up, you can look at that and be like, yeah, he's getting laughs, but it's bad. But it's he's being a bad stand-up comedian. Well, isn't that what makes a bringer show a little bit tough to judge the oh, quality 100%. of a stand-up? Because the people are laughing because they paid a lot of money to come and laugh at you specifically. But no, that's that's any stand-up show. That's, the thing that, that's one of the things that's so frustrating about being a stand-up is that you recognize that anybody can do well in any given circumstance, mm-hmm. you know, and there are, there are a lot of comics who've written about this, like being on the road and, you know, you, you go to a club in the middle of nowhere and it just happens to be the right audience where the guy who went up before you, who's terrible crushed and you did terrible. Mm-hmm. And you start to even think like, like, wh- what am I even doing? If that's the thing that's going to work, mm-hmm. you know? And so part of, your journey as a stand-up comedian, I've found, is recognizing that 
you know, you can't just judge whether or not something is good based on if it gets, if it gets a laugh or not, because anything can mm-hmm. get a laugh. Mm-hmm. So what's your criteria? It's, it's a combination of what gets a good reaction and also what I like and also what is smart. Mm-hmm. Um, what I consider to be smart. Um, somebody said that where uh, if you write, you know, for 10 hours a day and you only keep the things that you like, you'll never put out something that you're embarrassed of. Mm-hmm. And so there are jokes that I have done that have like done really well but every one of my standard comedian friends is like, you have to stop doing that joke. It's mm-hmm. terrible. And I'm like, but it gets a laugh. It gets, that's my A material right there. And they're like, yeah, well, we recognize that, but it's terrible. Yeah. You know? And so when you, I, I, I don't know, I suppose if you are interested in becoming the kind of standard comedian that you can be proud of, you eventually stop just looking at the jokes that do well and start thinking about the jokes that make you feel like you did something good on stage. Mm-hmm. So some, I mean, y- y- good in in that sense of having met your own standards good as in that sense of having shared something with an audience that actually matters to you on some level 100 percent. yeah i would even add to that like good like you in a small way um just put something out into the universe that you think the world is better for it being there ah that's a nice way of thinking about that yeah so where does improv live in this for you uh, improv is just, it's my first comedy love, yeah. you know, when I, I was always obsessed with comedy growing up, I was watching, uh, you know, comedy central back when it was just reruns of Saturday night live and sketch shows called like almost live mm-hmm. and the vacant lot. Um, oh, I remember the vacant lot. Oh, oh yeah. I still have sketches. I still have sketches in my brain from the vacant lot. I remember a Saturday Night Live sketch that I'd mention in class sometimes because I've only seen it once back when Comedy Central would play every single mm-hmm. episode of Saturday Night Live from every they season. did not have a lot of programming back then. It's unbelievable. You could watch the 1980 <laughs> season cast of Saturday Night Live. They play the whole season in like in like a day. It was insane. There was one sketch from the um, Billy Crystal, uh, uh, Martin, Martin Short era, mm-hmm. the 84 season. That if memory serves, and I'm sure I'm like getting this totally wrong, but it was a bunch of, of American soldiers holed up in like a bombed out house during the Second World War. And the Germans were advancing and the Americans had to go hide upstairs. But the problem was none of the Americans could figure out how to use the stairs. So the sketch was them like taking running leaps onto the stairs and then sliding down the stairs. <laughs> That's really funny. And it's like, is it possible that that was really a sketch on uh, Saturday Night Live? I That's the know. stupidest idea. I don't know. I, 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 I've never heard of that sketch, but... But that's, there, been, that's been sitting in my brain for... 20 years. I've got a similar one with uh, David Letterman. Yeah. Uh, I had a conversation with another stand-up friend of mine, Claudia Kogan, who we were exchanging our favorite David Letterman moments from when we were kids. And I saw a show, I have a vivid memory of seeing a show where Letterman would not stop talking about rotating pies at diners. Uh-huh. And he like mentioned it like 10 times in the monologue. And then he would have the celebrity <laughs> out. It was probably like a young Drew Barrymore or something. And, and she would talk about her movie. And then during the movie, he's like, it sounds incredible. You know, it's even more incredible. <laughs> rotating pies. They would cut to the footage of rotating pies. And I'm like, that was like one of my first moments of like, wow, that adult is silly. Yeah. Is, that is, he's a great person. 
but I, I've never been able to find any video evidence of that yeah. existing, you know, but anyways, so, uh, going back to the improv thing. Yeah. Watching comedy central back then. Yeah. Watching yeah. comedy central. I remember I used to take, um, like comedy records out of the library, not even understanding what the jokes were. I just really liked the, the rhythm of it. Like somebody talk, you get a laugh, somebody talk, you get a laugh. Um, and then I started doing some short form improv when I was in high school and there was just like an immediate spark. And I was just like this, I love this. Mm-hmm. I love this. And I remember I, my first, uh, job that I was able to keep without getting fired when I moved to New York was I was a, a host at a pizzeria Uno and uh, we were playing that old game MASH. Do you remember MASH? Oh, sure. Where you you can live in a mansion, apartment, a shack or a hole in the ground mm-hmm. and then you also come up with like different categories of like, oh, you're going to marry this person and you're going to do this for a job. You're going to make this much money. You have this many kids. And I remember we, we were just sitting there and this is, you know, I was waiting tables. I just graduated college. I was completely lost and drinking way too much. Uh, and we were like, all right, so what are you, what, what are the jobs that you want to have for this, uh, for this, you know, game that we were playing for this mash thing. And I was like, the only thing that I could remember loving doing was improv when I was in high school and college. And I was like, well, I want to be a paid improviser. And that was the job that I ended up getting. And I was going to live in a mansion with Gwyneth Paltrow. Those were the other answers that I recall. <laughs> Most of that sounds it's real not too good. Late. It's not too late. No, it's not too late. <laughs> I'll be honest. You know, I think you and Gwyneth would run out of things to talk about after a little while. I don't while. know. I don't know. I mean, I've been on. I've been on Goop. You know, <laughs> it seems like seems like you got some. Uh, I, I think she got a bad rep for those magic stickers she was trying to sell. Those. Uh, I just don't think the science is in on those stickers yet. But yeah, and then you know, I was uh, well, I moved to New York to be an actor, and I was auditioning, but I hated auditioning, and I kind of stopped auditioning so I could focus on my real passion of getting drunk with my friends at Pizzeria Uno. And then when I finally was able to shake off the depression long enough to have some tiny amount of motivation to actually go and do something artistic again, the first thing that I did was sign up for improv classes, mm-hmm. and taking the improv classes, doing the improv, seeing improv again, it was like, oh, this this is it. Mm-hmm. Finally, I found it, that thing that I had been missing. And I was the kind of guy who, I would go see improv from 6 p.m. until one o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I just wouldn't stop. And if if there was a thing that I had to go leave and do, I would feel terrible and I would run back to the theater to yeah. go watch it some more. Yeah, I mean, you and I began circling each other at UCB in the early 2000s, like 2003, 2004. Oh, yeah? We, yeah, we started encountering each other a lot. Because oh, we had yeah. seen each other a bunch of times before... The Magnus. We had met officially. Yes. You and I were usually the first two people in line for shows at UCB. That's so funny. Um, uh, and there were like a handful of people who were like young and didn't seem to have jobs and mm-hmm. just seemed to be at UCB <laughs> all night, every yeah, night. 100%. See everything. Um, so I met you. Know, I mean, you and I have been improvising alongside each other for 10 or 11 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've been doing stand up for about 10. So, so. So you had started stand-up after we met? Yes. I started, I, I think my first stand-up gig was, uh, I mentioned it was my friend's variety show. It was Sean Taylor. Oh, okay. Of, uh, of the Magnet Theater uh, Junior Varsity, you can see on Thursdays. Um, and yeah, I, I didn't even know Sean Taylor that well at the time, but I just knew that it was a show that was popular and that had an open admission policy. And so I just, I, I didn't even say it was my first time doing stand-up. I was just like, here, I'd love to do stand-up on the show. I got a spot. I got super nervous about it. I went down. I think I did like seven minutes of just like the most mediocre 
nonsense material that you'd ever heard. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I was a huge Eddie Izzard fan. And so a lot of the material that I was doing was kind of like me trying to do a little bit of what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And it just, obviously that's not who I am at all. And it's also very not current, you know, that was like really, really cool in like 98 and 99. And, you know, I'm obviously he had like a lot of really good shows in the early 2000s and stuff, but it's really not a style that, that worked when I started doing stand-up. And especially not if it's not me, you know, if you're just doing Eddie Izzard up there. So, yeah. It's an interesting thing. It, it, and I mean, it's different. I have no stand-up experience. I have all improv experience. So it's slightly different in improv. But it, it's interesting how like you grow up and you have the people who, who influence you and you start off trying to like imitate them and you fail at imitating them. And, and then you get to the point where you start to kind of absorb the lessons from them that kind of work for you. And then by time you get to that point, you're channeling a comic voice from 10 years ago that is no longer like a relevant voice. It, like, I don't know if you ever feel this way. I, I feel now so out of the loop of what's going on comedy wise at, at this particular stage of the game. There's just so many comedians, so many sketch groups, so many shows. I'm not up to date anymore. All the, all the stuff that I was busy digesting in the early stages when I was learning how to do comedy. Now I think it's fairly well digested and it's it kind of an inseparable part of, of the way that I perform and the way that I approach stuff. But it, it also, to me, it feels so fresh. And mm-hmm. it's like, oh, that's Steve Martin, 1978. So, so are you saying that you feel like because you've been active doing comedy, you haven't been able to digest the new things that are happening? Yeah. So maybe you are out yeah. of the loop now? Yes. Mm-hmm. Maybe out of the loop is a strong way of putting it. It just, you're mm-hmm. kind of... Um, I don't know. By 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 time that voice becomes your own, it's already a voice from a different era. It's an interesting perspective. I think you're not giving yourself enough credit there because I think that any comedian, even if you are, you know, doing comedy on an island, you know, with only a dozen people, if that comedian is still growing and changing and learning, the comedy you're doing is still relevant and good Mm. it's only the people that stagnate that are not going to be current Mm -hmm. i mean that's just a i'm you know kind of spitball on this right now but i just I, i know so many comedians who have stagnated and are just you know living off of this the 20 minutes that they they wrote 15 years ago and and they're current Mm -hmm. they're you know, they're listening to the new kids. They're, they're watching all the sketch shows that they're supposed to be watching. But their point of view is not, yeah, is not adapting. Exactly. Exactly. And so I think that somebody like, you know, a Lewis Kornfeld who maybe isn't, you know, going to the Creek in the cave every weekend to see the new sketch show or, you know, buying, uh, or, you know, subscribe to the comedy channel on Spotify you you're working and you're teaching mm-hmm. more importantly. And so I'm, I'm confident that your voice is still uh, current and oh, relevant. Yeah, of course. That makes me feel. <laughs> I just re- realize, like still to this day, I mean, it's not that I, I stop thinking about stuff. I'm mm-hmm. still thinking about stuff all the time and I'm encountering a shitload of people, you know, as a teacher and as a, as a performer at the theater, you see people going, but I realize that still so many of the things that are kind of like alive in my mind and so many of the ways that I still think about comedy are are based on those Comedy Central shows that I would come home and watch in the middle of the afternoon back when mm. Comedy Central had eight and a half hours of 
Saturday Night Live, some yeah. B-grade teen sex comedy, and then like four hours of Kids in the Hall. Yeah, yeah, so much Kids in the Hall, God. Yeah, no, well, I think, I mean, if I had to continue my theory with that extra information, mm-hmm. I would say that, you know, even though those references are dated, there is a diamond at the center of everything that was ever funny that will always still be funny. Mm-hmm. You know, even if I show you a, a Kids in the Hall sketch that was hilarious in the 90s, but it's just okay now, there's still something, there's still a foundation there mm-hmm. that could be translated to be used today. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think, you know, uh, Steve Martin's a great example of that. Um, if you see, if you watch Martin Short on like, uh, you know, an interview show with uh, Seth Meyers or, you know, Jimmy Kimmel or something, they're still killing. Like, they're still super funny. And you and you look at it and you're like, well, it's kind of a dad joke. And obviously it's a little silly and simple, but it's still really funny. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I mean, that could just be my opinion because I'm a fan of those guys. But, you know, no, I think that there's a, there's a foundation to certain comedies that will just always be funny. You can read you know, what uh, old Greek plays and still see what was funny about it. Mm-hmm. And, and it can still be funny today. Yeah, it, it uh, I, I agree in part with that, I think. Okay. Um, I have a hard time reading Greek plays and seeing what people were laughing at in it. The, um, but there definitely is, I mean, it, it, not to say like, like Martin Short, for example, I think is still like totally current and up to date on stuff. He's, mm-hmm. He's an old timer of a comedian, but he's not one of those people who who is just holding on to his accomplishments. Yeah. A lot of those SCTV people, that's true. You know, Andrea Martin, it's the same thing. Still like, really funny. Still yeah. really funny, still on top of it, on top of her game, as funny as she's ever been, not holding on to her success. Catherine O'Hara, Eugene Levy, all those people mm-hmm. are still yeah. as good as they ever were. But they also now, when you watch them have that kind of unstoppable thing of like, these are seasoned veteran performers yeah. who they carry some history with them and you feel that, but they're also like sharp as attack. Yeah. A hundred percent. Do you think that being too big maybe does that to people? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it does mm-hmm. for some people. I'm sure that being too big can be a trap. Yeah. It can, it can stagnate you and you, you kind of feel like you want to just give your audience the thing that they've been, asking for and so you don't grow because you want to just keep on doing them the favor of giving them the same thing over and over again yeah i mean that's that famous story about steve martin of why he quit stand-up yeah that's right realizing that at that point he was just hosting a party yeah yeah it it, it was just an opportunity for people to scream his jokes at him yeah if you guys like comedy you should read uh uh what was it called a stand uh, born standing born up. standing up yeah God, that is that, a, that is a very good book yeah awesome really really good book on comedy and super quick it's very engaging you can read it in like an afternoon it's a very quick read yeah um yeah i i, I think and i think it shows a lot of um courage and you got to know yourself really well to make a choice like that, to give it all up and start again from scratch. I think like Louis CK is a good example of, of that idea of like, and how he keeps on doing new hours. Yeah. I, that, that's really interesting. He, he's forcing himself to have to stay sharp and, and forcing himself to have to figure it out again. Oh, definitely. Yeah. That takes courage, but I'll, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, well, I'm going to say something that is not meant to take away from that, Sure, but you do start to hate, the jokes of yours that do the best. Sure. Yeah. I, I can think, understand that. I have to write something that's this good again. Right. Yeah. I have to have that in me. Right. Yeah. And I think that one of the benefits of getting that big is that you can write a bit that gets so much exposure that you can get, that you finally get to think like, 
like that bit had its moment and now I can stop doing it. Mm-hmm. Like there are, we were talking before the show started maybe, or I can't remember if we started recording or not, um, about a show that I did in 2012 in Los Angeles. And there are bits in that show that I love and that I don't really want to do again because I've done them a hundred times. But I feel like, I mean, if you added together every audience that have seen those bits, it's still only like a couple hundred people. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, if I if I had the kind of notoriety that a Louis C.K. or a Chris Rock or a Seinfeld has, then I would be able to give those bits a large exposure and then put them to bed forever. Mm-hmm. You know, And I think that's one of the best things that a comic can do. On a much, much smaller scale than that. I, I remember... Um, uh, I used to do a night of short form on uh, uh, with Second City, and we would do the game 185, or sometimes for the adults yeah. only version, Innuendo. Okay, they're the exact same game. You make up a joke on the spot. You get a suggestion of a of an object, and you translate that object into a joke. Where 185, you know, um, light bulbs come into a bar, etc. Uh, when you are finished with this point, can yeah. I tell you a quick story about that game? Please. All right. Or innuendo is the version of that where you like your lover the same way you like your light bulbs or, you know, whatever. Gotcha, gotcha. And I remember there was like a thing with the cast of that where um, you would rather bomb with a terrible joke that you knew didn't work than reuse the joke from last week that you knew killed. Yeah. There's just that feeling of the audience is going to hate this, but I walk away with my head held high yeah. knowing that I gave it my all. And I was willing to just fall flat on my face rather than take that safe route and and kind of lie a little bit. Yeah. And, and that's obviously a, t- a very different, much smaller version of it, you know, because part, yes. of, part of the art of stand-up is the art of making it seem like you're making it up or making it seem like it's totally fresh, but really having a well-honed joke. But that idea of not relying on something that you know is going to work, but still kind of venturing forth. It, I mean, the way that you've, phrase that I think is really good of like, that's got to still be in me somewhere. Yeah. That can't be a one time or two time thing. I actually think uh, what you described was worse because with stand up, even though we're making it seem like it's new and fresh every time there's an understanding that it's not, mm-hmm. but in improv there is uh there is the promise of it being fresh. Mm-hmm. There was the promise of it being, this just came off the dome, you know? And so it must be even more, draining on an artist to have to reuse a short form bit. Oh, you know? I'm sure. But uh, uh, 185. The 185, uh, I got uh, hired to do uh, short form. I got put on a short form team at a place in New York City in 2007. I was only with them for like eight months. I got, I, I got on the team because I'd already been doing uh, long form at the Magnet and the UCB. And so I knew that's what I wanted to do. But I had heard that some short form teams paid. And so I was like, oh, maybe if I can do that, then that could be my uh, paid improv job. And then I'll live in a mansion and marry Gwyneth Paltrow mm-hmm. as, as my fortune has been foretold by, you know, the uh, mash <laughs> by mash. Incidentally, mash comes true 65% of the time. 65%. Oh, that is an incredible it's a really stat. startling number. <laughs> Uh, that explains all my friends from high school that are just living in holes in the <laughs> yeah, ground. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, you know, <laughs> uh, but anyway, so. I remember very specifically because it was my birthday and I was doing a couple of long form improv shows in the magnet uh, that I was promoting really, really hard and I lost my voice and it was my birthday. And like, so we did the shows and I had no voice and I went out drinking that night. I just felt worse the next day. And the next day was my very first show with this short form team 
that was, and this is important to the story, uh, supposed to be family friendly. Mm. And so I went there and, you know, I had re- rehearsed with them a couple of times, but I'd never done a show yet. And so I was really excited because the first show, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, we get to the point of the show where we're doing 185. And I got, uh, the suggestion was rabbis, 185 rabbis walk into a bar. Bartender says, we don't serve your kind here. And then you're supposed to think of a funny thing to say after that, you know. Uh, and so what I came up with was I said, uh, uh, I, I go out there and this is like, you know, one of the first things that I do in the very first show of the short form team that's supposed to be family friendly. I say, 185 rabbis walk into a bar. Bartender says, we don't serve your kind here. The rabbis say, that's okay. We'll just go to the bakery next door instead. Do you know how much the Holocausts? <laughs> and I, I, like there was a, there was that weird, like, Ooh, laughter! Like people are going like, 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 but they're laughing and they're clapping and stuff like that. And like I was just like, yeah, I did it, I did it, you know. And then you know we obviously we leave the stage for like a break in the middle of the show, and it is like it it, it was like a funeral in the green room. And I was like, I was like, what what was going? Is everybody okay? And they're like, you really can't say things like that. And I was like, oh okay. And so you know that was uh, me straightening up my act for the rest of the time that I was performing with that short form team. Well, it might be a, 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 a rather tasteless joke for a family-friendly uh, uh, comedy sports setup. But, uh, I mean, credit where credit is due. That's a hell of a joke to make up on the spot. Uh, God, I want to – you, when you do comedy for so long, you forget where the, where the inspiration comes from. Sure. And I want to say that that was something that was spontaneous, but I can't guarantee it. I can't guarantee that I didn't make that connection at some point before in my life, but I – vaguely remember that being the first time that it that it gestated it's amazing how sometimes a a joke will get into your head and then years later it will suddenly like resurface in the middle of a scene or something oh, 100%. unbelievable i just realized um a couple of years ago i not a couple of years ago i think it was like one year ago i was doing a, a stand-up gig in hartford connecticut and i was featuring and the headliner was giving me a ride back to new york and i had this one closing that i did that he was telling me on the ride back he was like that's a really great joke and i was like oh thank you so much that's wonderful to hear and he goes, where was the inspiration for that? And I was like, trying to, I was like, what the hell? Where was that information? Where was that inspiration for that joke? And then suddenly on this drive back, I was like, oh my God, that was an improv scene that I did. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't believe it. And it, I remember very specifically, I was doing Armando. I was in a class with Armando and he wanted us to try to do scenes that went backwards mm-hmm. where you would see things like a bank robbery backwards, you know, and... I was like, oh my God, that's where that joke came from. That is unbelievable. I don't want to, you know, tip my head. Uh, if anybody ever wants to go see me do stand up, I don't want to ruin that joke. It's one of my favorites. Mm. You know, I don't mind ruining the Jersey Boys joke because that <laughs> one's uh, on, on the slush pile. It's yeah. in the C pile right we'll now. We'll save this. You're going to have to see Garrett live to see, to see this one. And I'll give you the full story if you ever ask me about it. I promise you that. Sweet. <laughs> um, I just, just the other day I was just like walking and uh, an old Jonathan Katz joke popped into my head that I hadn't thought about for like years. Ooh, I love Jonathan Katz. Me too. And with Jonathan Katz, so much of it is in his delivery too, but he has a joke about being at the dinner table, visiting his parents and being at the dinner table and having a Freudian slip. He meant to ask his father uh, uh, for to pass the potatoes, but what came out was you ruined my childhood, you fucking prick. It's a great one. It's a really, it's a really, good, really joke. good one. Yeah, I like those jokes. The... um. I don't know if there's a word for it, but kind of like a blunt misdirect. Yeah. Like there's another version of that where somebody says, 
I had to break up with my girlfriend uh, because I'm a Pisces and she was a awful cheating, you know, yeah. whatever. Uh, bad word. Bad, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that blunt, it's so obvious that, yeah, that yeah. that's the point of the joke. There's another one that uh, a friend of mine came up with. Wait, he did a, he did an open mic recently and it's, you know, obviously it's heartbreaking to tell a friend of yours when they do an open mic, like, Hey, that joke that you did that did really well. It's been done a thousand times, mm-hmm. but there's another one where you say, uh, uh, an awful thing that you just did. And then you say, just kidding. And then you say, I didn't really do. And then you name the least offensive part of it, mm-hmm. you know? So then if you were like, Oh, you know, uh, yesterday I was, uh, I was, a uh, uh, stabbing nuns on 32nd street. And then you go, just kidding. I've never been on 32nd street. Right. You know, I don't know what the word, what you would call that, but that's another formula that I've seen like a hundred times. Yes. You know? Yeah. Sometimes it can be a little draining in the same way as there's like improv go-to's that kind of just like you zone out. There's a lot of stand-up go-tos that you zone out. Too. Yeah. And then sometimes there are people who like Stephen Wright to this day, it, it, you know, has that like amazing ability to just do like classic joke setup that gets you yeah, every time. 100%. There are people who like find their artistry in doing the, the kind of standard thing. Totally. And I mean, you know, it's standard possibly also because that person did it. It was revolutionary. And then everybody else did it from that point on. Yeah. And I think a comic that doesn't get enough uh, credit for being exactly that is Rodney Dangerfield. Mm-hmm. I grew up at a time when Rodney Dangerfield was on the decline and he was cemented in my brain as like a like a not funny old person, you yeah. know? And then a couple of years ago, there's a show that the stand-ups in New York will do called Stick or Treat every Halloween. They will get dressed up as famous comedians and just do those famous comedians acts. It's a wonderful show. But it is, it's super long, but it's really, really cool. Everybody does like three minutes. And this guy got up and did a spot on Rodney Dangerfield and for three minutes just slayed mm-hmm. with Rodney Dangerfield jokes. And it was one of those moments where I was like, oh my God, that guy was famous for a reason. That guy who, when I grew up, I was like, ah, that's, he's old, he's not funny. He, the reason why I was able to see him on television doing things is because he had, he was at one point incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Did you read, uh, uh, I forget his name, Cliff, Clef, Clef Nestor, I think, his book, <laughs> The Comedians? Uh, no, no. It's a pretty good read. It, it liked, it's basically like a history of comedy in, in, in America from like the end of vaudeville up until like The Daily Show. Okay. Um, but like it, it's it, a documentation, not only of like the big ones, like, like Rodney Dangerfield, but of like those whole generations of comedians who just like cut their teeth and became professionals and sort of got forgotten, but were like on the road for 40 years or mm-hmm. he has some really interesting stories there. And it's a very seedy feeling book too. Cause it like captures that era where like the mafia was running, you know, all of comedy. Cool. But it's super interesting. And, and you, you, there is that thing of like, man, you grew up as a kid thinking that these guys weren't very funny, but you look at, at the way that they, like they, their entire career was just doing this. Yeah. Like there's a reason why they were around for so long. Cause 100%. they knew they graduated to that point where I may not find it funny and it's not a voice that's relevant to our generation or to our sensibility, but they got to that point where these guys were in command of what they were doing. Yeah. A hundred percent. Totally. I think it's weird that generations people can grow up not seeing the best version of somebody. Yeah. You know, I, I'm sort of, you know, leaning heavily on this concept just cause it's something that I've been, thinking about a long, a lot recently, because I had a similar relationship with, with Sylvester Stallone, who when I grew up was a B-movie action star. Mm-hmm. 
and then I had I had the realization that oh he wrote Rocky mm-hmm. you know oh he was a script doctor like he fixed other people's movies that he wasn't in mm-hmm. and then having to have that realization of oh Sylvester Stallone's incredible oh he's 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 amazing and I mean thank goodness he's having like a little uh, resurgence now with uh, that Creed movie that oh god he was incredible in that um, but. To think that I was a kid for so long thinking that this person had no value, Mm -hmm. you know? Sorry, I just think that's an interesting idea. I just think it's an interesting concept. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) I agree. Uh, We're getting down to the wire. Um, All right. So uh, plug away, my friend. All right. When does the book come out and what is it called? The uh, the book is called The Kellyanne Conway Technique. Uh, It is by myself, Jarrett Berenstein, and... uh, it is officially coming out on August 22nd. There will be a book launch show, stand-up show at the Magnet Theater on the 7th uh, at 7.30. Um, you can go to all, all the things that I'm doing, you can find at jarrettbarenstein.com. Um, I also have a radio show on Radio for Brooklyn called Famous Dead People, where I will have improvisers come on and pretend to be Famous people who have died, like Charlie Chaplin or JFK or P.T. Barnum. Et cetera, I got to interrupt you for one second. Yeah, I know you can't play favorites, but <laughs> who was who your favorite? Who was your favorite famous dead person to be on the show? Oh God, um, let's see here. There, there been a lot of really, really good episodes. I think my favorite that I ever, I think my favorite one might be Megan Gray as Sigmund Freud. Uh-huh. Uh, because, well, she didn't do an accent, which is a little bit of a handicap. Like people that do accents tend to be like really silly and fun. Uh, but there was something about the way that she did every one of his weird theories. You know, like they're like Freud had so many things about sex that were like, you know, we look at as bonkers now. Mm. And I forget exactly what she did, but she she was... She was um, framing them in a way that was obviously ridiculous, but made it seem like he still believed them, wow. you know? But so, yeah, that was a great one. Um, uh, oh, um, Andy Moskowitz did Jane Austen. That also might be one of my favorites uh, because he was doing Jane Austen. I didn't, this is one of the fun things about doing Famous Dead People is that I end up learning a lot about the person that I'm interviewing so mm-hmm. I can write the questions for him. And Jane Austen, a lot of her books were originally titled other things and then had to like get rewritten. And so he was, he was talking about what the books were beforehand. And that I still, one of my favorite jokes on there where uh, he's saying that uh, Pride and Prejudice was 300 pages of torture porn before before it was re-edited and then published. Um, Yeah. I think uh, so I'll tell you that the most popular episode that has ever uh, been up is still the, um, Susan B. Anthony, Andy Warhol episode mm-hmm. has like, I don't know, 300 more listens than I think the, the second most popular episode. Uh, but yeah, so that's Famous Dead People. It's a podcast. It's a radio show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I also have a second podcast that's just me hanging out with standups called Hangout Party Fun Time. You can find that on my website, jarrettbarenstein.com. And uh, yeah, check me out on Twitter at, at just Jarrett. I say a lot of um, very angry things about politics and, uh, you know, also jokes as well. And I'll let you guys know where I'm doing stand-up and improv and, you know, you can follow me there and come out and see a live show or buy my book. Buy my book. Sounds good to me. <laughs> Jared Bernstein, thanks for talking, my friend. Thank you for having me. Nice seeing you. Uh, that has been the podcast. Thanks for listening. Friends, I'd like to give a couple of thank yous. As always, first off to our engineer today, uh, uh, the wonderful Joe Glasgow, to our producer, Woo-hoo. Evan Ford Barden, Woo-hoo. our executive producer, Evan uh, Ford Barden, our other executive producer, Ed Herbstman. Woo-hoo. 
and all of you good, kind, fine people for listening to the podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes and a shout out on social media. That would be fabulous stuff. Check out Jarrett's work on uh, uh, the wide range of media. You can visit his website for JarrettBernstein.com. Uh, look up what he's doing, where he'll be. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Goodbye. You've been listening to The Magnet Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by The Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.